Hey everybody, it's me, James Intracasso. Welcome to the Tome Show's coverage of Gen Con 2016. I am putting this generic beginning in front of all the panels we recorded live just to give you a heads up that we didn't have as much control over the recording environment as we normally do, so that means things like background noise, volume levels, and also explicit content uh, we did not have control over. So we just wanted to give you a heads up that there might be a few of those issues going forth, especially this explicit content. So if you're listening with younger ears or you're more sensitive, we just want you to be aware. And I'd also like to let you know that you should use the affiliate links at thetomeshow.com for Amazon or the DMs Guild whenever you shop on those places. Just click on the banners in the show notes for this episode or any other and then shop as you normally would. And I'd also like to thank our sponsor for this podcast, noblenight.com, their brick-and-mortar game store where out-of-print is available again. They have D&D and other tabletop RPGs, any edition, any product. With Noble Knight, you can even sell your old gaming products that you aren't using anymore. All right, we're going to hear a quick word from them, and then it's time to go to Gen Con. In an election year, gamers can be divided on almost every issue. Is it more important to support a small business or to have the convenience of buying your gaming products online? Do you play shiny new systems full of epic awesome or gritty older out-of-print games that make even the groggiest of nards quake with fear? In this economy, is it time to stock up on as many high-quality discounted gaming products as possible, or is it time to sell the old gaming products you aren't using anymore? We are divided on every important issue. So in 2016, you should support the store that lets you do it all. Noble Knight, a brick-and-mortar small business with a strong online presence that has new products and specializes in out-of-print, all at a price you'll love. And yes, they'll buy your old gaming products as well. Check out the incredible offerings at noblenight.com. Tell them the Tome Show sent you and help make gaming great again. So, uh, my name is Kenneth Height. Uh, I'm primarily a tabletop game designer, board, uh, role-playing games almost entirely. I also, however, write essays and nonfiction. Uh, essays that you might have read include those in Tour to Lovecraft, which was an examination of Lovecraft stories. Uh, and, and of sort of the high level of the criticism about them with some of my own critical thoughts. Cthulhu 101, which is like a primer uh, on, you know, if you've got a significant other who's not into Lovecraft but wants to understand what all these plush toys are in your house, shoot them that, give them the 411. Um, also, uh, the Cthulhu Wars from Osprey that just came out, which is a military history of America's war against the mythos, going back to colonial times. Uh, and then some mythos fiction, uh, most recently, uh, La Musique de l'Ennui, which is in Madness on the Orient Express, the anthology the Chaosium did a year ago. So that's that. On the tabletop side, I have, bizarrely enough, not yet written for Call of Cthulhu. I've written for Delta Green. I've designed Trail of Cthulhu. Uh, which is the Pelgrane Press licensed Call of Cthulhu adaptation to the gumshoe system. And for Trail of Cthulhu, I've done the Bookhounds of London campaign, the Mythos Expedition scenario pack, uh, Rough Magics, which is the magic guide for Trail, because I came up with good magic rules after I'd written the book. Um, and I'm honest enough to tell you that. Uh, and then a number of other products that I've had my, my fist into one degree or another on, on that side. And then for Delta Green, I wrote uh, in Targets of Opportunity, I wrote a scenario uh, that wound up in my chapbook, Dubious Shards, uh, a Delta Green scenario, and I am currently one of the designers on the Delta Green role-playing game, which is in production as we speak, 
and I am right now writing Fall of Delta Green, which is a gumshoe adaptation of Delta Green, which will be out, I assume, simultaneously with the full Delta Green role-playing game, which sets Delta, which is set during the 1960s when Delta Green was an authorized agency of the federal government, or not agency, it was a codename program, but it was official. There was a, there was a desk you could call. Um, and that is my uh, Cthulhu cred, such as it is also, obviously, having scared the bejesus out of myself with Colorado Space at age 12 and then not having stopped reading Lovecraft since. So... Uh, Cthulhu in gaming begins with Call of Cthulhu from uh, Chaosium. Uh, Sandy Peterson's design for Call of Cthulhu is the greatest role-playing game ever, remains the greatest role-playing game ever, much as King Lear remains the greatest play ever. Sorry, you write a play, it's not going to be King Lear, just suck it up. Um, uh, Call of Cthulhu similarly epically timeless deals fully with human tragedy and responsibility and has a lot of great lines in it. So, much like Lear, can live forever. Uh, this, the purity of Sandy's design in which normal mortal people destroy themselves to prevent harm from befalling innocents, uh, the sanity death spiral, the um, uh, use of a fractional and graduated skill system that is nonetheless core to play, all of these things come together to create the best evocation of Lovecraft's um, uh, uh, stories, if not his universe, but with a strong overbearing source of his universe that I think has ever been done. Uh, Call of Cthulhu, however, is a, um, uh, it's like, the, like I say, the Shelby Cobra is the best car ever, but if you want to go into the mud, maybe you should take a Jeep. Uh, Trail of Cthulhu sort of optimizes his Call of Cthulhu for investigative role-playing, so while it can't do a lot of things that Call of Cthulhu does, it can go through the mud faster. Uh, Trail of Cthulhu uh, is something that I designed in 2008. Uh, before and around that, there have been lots of other examples of Cthulhu in role-playing games, uh, starting with the accidentally illegal use of the Cthulhu mythos and deities and demigods, running through uh, other adaptations of Call of Cthulhu, such as Realms of Cthulhu for uh, Savage Worlds, Tremulous, which adapts uh, the Cthulhu uh, mythos, though not Call of Cthulhu, to uh, the Powered by the Apocalypse system, as well as more uh, uh, revolutionary designs like um, Cthulhu Dark, which is by Graham Walmsley and is a very simple story game of Cthulhu. There's a current currently kickstarting, or recently kickstarted, but currently in production game, Lovecraft Desk, which uh, wind, it, 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 it's attempting to recenter the non-white uh, victim of the Lovecraft mythos, though uh, it does it by having you play their oppressors, which I'm not exactly sure works, but is it's certainly interesting. Also, of course, um, uh, uh, the um, uh, I'm going to forget the. There was a Polish role-playing game. Uh, damn it! It's in Latin, and I've and it's Sunday at Chencon. <laughs> um, it, it's uh, uh, out of the abyss. So if anyone with Catholic school, you'll know what it is. Um, the uh, um, uh, but but it was a, it was a postal role-playing game where you wrote letters back and forth to each other. Uh, and attempted to go uh, parent, clinically paranoid while doing it. 
Um, it was phenomenal. If I could have remembered what it was called. It's by Michael Orax, O-R-A-C-Z. So that at least will let you Google it, and then you'll say, you dummy, yes. Is it uh, De Profundis? De Profundis. Thank you. Jesus. This is awful. The shattered wreck of a man you see before you. Um, I think that that hits the heights of actual Cthulhu roleplay. Although, actually, uh, Sandy is right now translating all the Cthulhu monsters into Pathfinder. So I think that that, that, that uh, pulls us back around to um, uh, Cthulhu as a 30th level priest mage from uh, Deities and Demigods, quite effectively. Oh! And I co-wrote the D20 Call of Cthulhu adaptation, for God's sake. Uh, so, Cthulhu is well represented, even just at the core experience of core role-playing games, and then he shows up in one or another various forms in a zillion other role-playing games, which there's no real point in getting into unless any of you are specifically interested. Uh, when Delta Green uh, comes out as its own role-playing game, obviously that will be yet another uh, uh, translation of the mythos, Delta Green is probably the best campaign frame ever designed, which makes it a nice combination for the best role-playing game ever designed. And it uh, pairs uh, bureaucratic paranoia with cosmic nihilist paranoia perfectly. Um, and it turns out that uh, in the X-Files 90s, we only thought we were paranoid. Um, now, haha, it's even better. Um, also, Cthulhu, of course, has plenty of board games, beginning most significantly with Arkham Horror uh, by Richard Lanius, which came out sometime in the mid-'80s, 86, I want to say, but it might have been a little earlier than that, um, and then has been re-revised by Fantasy Flight Games into the sprawling monstrosity of beauty that it is now, has spawned a number of other uh, competitors' imitations. Uh, I don't think any of which necessarily need to concern us, although I hear that Eldritch Horror is sort of a um, uh, methadone for the Arkham Horror crack. Uh, Cthulhu spawned a trading card game, Mythos, from, Call of, uh, from Chaosium, and after the trading card b bubble burst, uh, the survivors uh, include the Call of Cthulhu living card game from Fantasy Flight, and uh, again, a number of other, one or another degree of, um, uh, uh, of Cthulhu Mythos-influenced uh, card games. Illuminati, of course, famously be had a Servants of Cthulhu in it, um, and uh, the uh, it was it was creatures and cultists I think was the was the card game that uh, Pagan did back when they were uh, also making card games as well as role playing games. So the and then of course it's gone further out and further out. There's a puzzle game called The Stars Are Right, which is actually pretty fun, and it's got a Cthulhu skin on a not at all cosmically nihilist theme. Uh, uh, Atlas Games has. Uh, the interesting escape from Rilia and the silly uh, uh, Fatan, uh, Fast and Fatan, which is a car racing Cthulhu skin game. Um, and there's uh, literally zillions of other loosely skinned uh, Cthulhu uh, card games, board games, dice games, Skittles, whatever else it is the kids are up to now. Um, as well as, of course, Cthulhu and a whole rack of video games going all the way back to good old Infocom, Alone Against the Dark, and then forward through the brand new um, uh, Call of Cthulhu licensed video game that is, I think, in production now? I don't think it's out. Maybe it's out. Um, but in between that, there was, um, uh, was it Against, against the Ice? Something, Alone in the Ice? Something like that. And uh, uh, Shadow of the Comet, which were both uh, very cool. And there was a uh, what I call a first-person not-shooter. 
which was the one where you go around in Innsmouth and run away from things, um, and the name of which is, it might have just been Call of Cthulhu, but I think there was, there was, Dark Corners, thank you, well done. I, if we're all together, we're as we know as much as I usually know, um, <laughs> and, and well done to you. Um, so, uh, in video gaming, which is not my super knowledgeable field, Cthulhu has a even bigger shadow than he does in role playing, because of course the tentacle has been the global signifier of outside horror since, not coincidentally, Lovecraft made it that. Um, and so in any video game where you see a tentacle and it is bad, that is Lovecraft. That is Cthulhu. Uh, before Lovecraft, only one horrorist ever used the tentacle as a signifier of outside horror. That was M.R. James in one short story, Count Magnus, which we know Lovecraft read. But M.R. James, God bless him, if he were capable of utterly altering the culture, we would have a much better culture than we have now. <laughs> so I think we can put it all down to Lovecraft. Um, and that sort of gets me around to the point of, is all of this relevant to Lovecraft? Is the fact that we have hilarious Cthulhu plush dolls and bumper stickers and, uh, and tchotchkes and, and miniatures and uh, Sandy, of course, is a great uh, Cthulhu Wars board game with the cool plastic minis. Is this in some way a trivialization or an emptiness of, of, of the mythos, of the philosophical truths of the mythos, that the universe is not just uh, uncaring, but also actively seeks our harm. And that those two seemingly irreconcilable uh, attitudes can be merged, assuming that you assume something that uh, is literally maltheist, that the more you know about creation, the more directly it opposes you which is the, the, the fundamental insight of Lovecraft, and which does not come out reliably in hilarious Cthulhu-themed puzzle games. Um, and I think that to mistake the signifier for the signified in this way is sort of an elementary error. Um, you might as well say, well, um, uh, because there is Count Chocula cereal, at the right one end can't have been scary, or let the right one end can't have been scary. That's, that, that's obviously true. You don't sit and think, well, I have a Cthulhu plush doll, therefore I cannot understand Lovecraft. We're always concerned with some imaginary other person who has it confused. My thesis is that most people are pretty good at separating signifier from signified, and if they can't, they have much bigger problems than misinterpreting a uh, second-rate philosopher and first-rate horror writer. Um, Because, as we've all, I hope, experienced in play, a good session of Call of Cthulhu, Delta Green, or Trail of Cthulhu can absolutely bring that uh, feeling of oppressive uninterest, of uh, hateful disinterest, of uh, nihilist apathy right into your, into your lived experience, right into your momentary emotional makeup. And whether you are fundamentally a sunny, optimistic, happy person, which I certainly hope you all are, or not, you have gone to that cathartic place where horror and art meet up, and where Lovecraft, of course, went more reliably and more readily, I think, than virtually any other creator. And it is that ability to go there, that sort of mapped ascent of the glacier of catharsis, that explains partially why Cthulhu is fucking everywhere without ever having been in a big budget movie, without ever having been in a best-selling comic book, 
without ever having been in a actually mass market novel. Cthulhu has conquered popular culture without ever getting into popular culture, which is astonishing. And again, which I think speaks entirely to the power of the symbol and the myth. Um, obviously, the reason the symbol and the myth were activated so powerfully is because I think Lovecraft is a really great writer. But that's sort of a different panel and a different question. So we have this overarching framework of tentacles that when we just read them as the signifier, we can use them for fun and hilarity and goofing around and saying funny names and haster, 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 and all the rest of that. But when we are playing a game that is intending to bring philosophy and emotion into the front and center of it, then we can experience the signified. And it's just don't mistaking, don't mistake the two and you don't make any of the philosophical errors that people do when they worry about Cthulhu games. Uh, that is basically my thesis. So rather than re-adumbrate it again, why don't I see if anyone's got any questions about Cthulhu gaming and feel free to say, hey Ken, have you heard of this cool, funny Cthulhu game? Uh, what do you think? So. Uh, just because the talk was sort of philosophically centered doesn't mean that the conversation has to be. Perhaps I have done enough of that for all of us. Yeah? I want to ask a question. Uh, why do you think of this sort of nihilistic cosmic horror that Lovecraft has kind of become the default rather than, say, a more modern writer like Thomas Ligotti or someone else taking up some of that brain? It doesn't like you get a lot of that. Anyone else really bumping into that? Well, I mean, first of all, if it is possible to be less published than Lovecraft, Ligotti has managed it. Um, Ligotti is a marginal figure in a marginal field of a marginal field. Lovecraft was merely a dominant figure in a marginal field of a marginal field. So I think we all know the answer to that. Ligotti is also vastly less accessible than Lovecraft because Ligotti does not have, uh, does not speak in archetypal terms. He speaks entirely in philosophical terms. I mean, a puppet is certainly an archetypal figure to Ligotti, but there is not a named puppet that we're all like, oh, I know that puppet, I'm going to put him on a t-shirt. Um, you can't do that. Lovecraft gave his god a name when he, when he uh, personified that. Um, and and Ligotti even makes fun of that in Medhiscurial, where the search for a non-existent god creates the conditions for that god's existence, but is also predicated on the non-existence of the God in the first place. Uh, that's, you know, Ligotti's big, you know, to Lovecraft. Uh, it, of course, turns into a Lovecraftian story because Lovecraft is bigger than Ligotti and Ligotti knows it. Um, but that's why. Uh, I think it's more interesting to ask why Lovecraft and not um, uh, Stephen King, right? Stephen King should have all the advantages. He's had a zillion movies. He's had a zillion bestsellers. He, you know, his name opens, it can open a TV show, it can open a movie, it can open virtually anything, and yet, you know, count the Salem's Lot shirts out there, count the Pennywise the Clown shirts out there. It's not a fragment of the Cthulhu shirts. Um, the reason is Lovecraft is doing something powerful and important, and Stephen King is just, you know, um, uh, scaring suburbanites. Nothing wrong with scaring suburbanites, it's a good living, but it doesn't create Cthulhu. Um, I think the, the, the central power of Cthulhu is that it, he manages to embody everything that we fear in the 20th century and 21st century because he is a mass impersonal terror. Count Dracula wants you or your girlfriend. Um, you know, uh, 
the Joker wants Batman or you if you're near Batman. Um, Cthulhu doesn't want anything. He's just going to destroy the world. Cthulhu is climate change or terrorism or ecocide or cancer or any of the other things that we are thinking, well, we had a, we had a good run, but it's going to end. And the it's going to end is Cthulhu. Uh, Lovecraft gives us an apocalypse. He personifies it or iconis, uh, iconifies it. And therefore, we can put a face to a name and we can either uh, cathartically stave off an apocalypse that we all sense is coming, or we can um, uh, symbolize the inability to save off an, an apocalypse. Either way, Cthulhu's doing double duty. So I think that because uh, Cthulhu is a mass horror, he is very applicable to a mass era. Lovecraft creates Cthulhu because he is, uh, you know, he was a huge science, uh, fan of science, so he was reading Shapley and discovered that, oh, no, the galaxy is not alone, and it's much bigger than we thought, and we're on the edge of it. He is reading Heckel, who is even less of a humanist than Darwin, and Heckel is saying, mankind, <laughs> rounding error. Uh, he's reading Freud, who is saying, um, uh, everything that we believe about ourselves and our soul is just uh, a steam engine working in our mind. Uh, Freud was at least wrong, but, you know, Heckel and uh, Shapley have still proven out. And he reads Einstein, and Einstein is saying, we don't even know where we are. Our math is entirely conditional. And Lovecraft is like, well, there you go. Um, if, you, if you follow science with logical conclusion, the only answer is cosmic nihilism. And since no one wants, even Lovecraft doesn't act like cosmic nihilism is true, right? He's pleasant to people. He pays his bills to the extent he can. Um, he doesn't go running out and chopping people's houses down and setting them on fire just because they're, you know, from Hungary or somewhere, um, although he wanted to. So he separates it. He puts it into an icon, gives us a symbol, and that lets us address it and not actually be just crushed by terror. I prom I, they don't all have to be philosophical answers, by the way, but he started it. <laughs> yeah. So what do you think about the whole dimension, everything that is associated in Cthulhu and, like, the full society and so on and so forth? Uh, you're going to have to be more specific when you say the whole dimension. Dementia. Dementia. Oh. Like, uh, causing people to be demented. Oh, right, yeah. Like, in, in the storyline as well as yeah. in, like, role play and so on and so forth. Well, I don't think role-playing makes people demented. I mean, if they were demented before, they stay demented. And if they weren't demented before, they maybe understand why their friend is demented. I mean, the aspect of, of being demented in game, not, not necessarily being demented when they are being Good ringtone, though. No, I think what you're kind of getting at is the fact that there is this sort of potentially troubling aspect of sort of treating mental illness like it's a role-playing mechanic and treating, you know, like that, like, idea as, you know, sort of this thing that you're interacting with in that way. Well, I'll answer your question while the dropkick yeah. Mur Murphys are out of the room. Um, and then if that wasn't his question, well, if it was his question, he's missed the answer. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That, that was the question? Okay. Um, I think that uh, we have a couple of different... I mean, obviously, if you've got a uh, person who's suffering from a mental illness, 
uh, you know, not even at the table, but maybe one of their, their family or, or close friends is, then that becomes a sensitive topic, and you shouldn't role play about it any more than you should role play um, uh, the rape uh, about the Ray Bradbury story where. Um, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the baby in the womb is trying to kill the mother, small assassin, if you've had a, a, someone at the table who's you know, lost, a, uh, lost a, a pregnancy or something. It's just a matter of, pol- of simple couth and politeness. And that's a different question than, is this entire topic off the table at all? And given the fact that all art goes back I mean, to the Greeks, goes back to using madness as a signifier and typifier. I think it may be a little late to shut that barn door. Um, I think you can do it more or less sensitively, obviously. Uh, if you are attempting horror, then role-playing insanity for cartoonish purposes is both offensive and useless. And so probably pick one. That would be my advice. Um, I think that you can attempt to map the genuine experience of losing the ability to relate to the real world without necessarily uh, mapping the lived experience of actually having a mental illness. And I think you can certainly square that circle by saying, since no one in the real world has been exposed to the cosmic truths of the Lovecraft mythos, since they are not asterisk cosmic truths, you can say this kind of insanity that happens when you read the Necronomicon or Seek Cthulhu or whatever is so functionally different from having uh, paranoid schizophrenia that although they may seem similar from the outside to uh, foolish psychiatrists who doubt the truth of Daloth, when you're role-playing them, they can feel entirely differently. Uh, you know, But I think that to say you cannot represent madness in art is... Uh, first of all, wrong, because you transparently can, and should is also wrong, because you transparently should, because art is how we communicate the fundamental humanity of each other, and if you say, I'm sorry, that experience is too inhuman to be played, I don't think you're doing anyone any favors. Now, again, if it's just a sensitive subject, because you've got a a mother with dementia or something, then, yeah, don't play about it, because play is not meant to make you feel terrible, Catharsis is not meant to feel terrible. Um, uh, Sophocles did not go up on stage and make fun of people's illnesses. Sophocles went up on stage and explained that all illness is the state of human being, right? So uh, that would be the difference. Um, and again, you know, everyone's table is different. What everyone is comfortable with is different. And the juvenile use of mental trauma is, I don't think, always absent some real personal connection much more damaging than the juvenile use of bullet trauma. You know, if you've ever been, you know, not even shot, if you've ever, you know, had your, uh, uh, you know, had uh, a pipe, you know, run into your leg because you were, you know, doing some uh, construction and you didn't look where you were going, it is not a, oh, two hit points. (laughs) It is a, fuck, I can't walk for two weeks. But we don't do that because it would make the game worse. Similarly, with mental, uh, uh, mental trauma, we don't, role play out the real lived experience of never actually understanding what another person is saying because that would make the game bad. Uh, so uh, this is a little bit lighter, but um, how do you feel about superheroes uh, taking on elder gods? Because I know that Savage Worlds is putting out uh, Elder Charter, I think, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's sort of the, the elevator pitch for that concept. 
Um, I actually, and I hope that this was an intentional shill, but if it's not, I'll use it as one, <laughs> crossed over the superheroes and the older gods on a product called Adventures into Darkness, which I wrote uh, some years ago. It, it's from Atomic Overmind Press. I encourage you all to buy it. Um, and in which I posited an alternate universe in which Lovecraft survived his cancer and went on to write comic books because uh, he was very ill and he couldn't write full-on short stories. So Julius Schwartz hooks him up with Nidor Publishing and blah, blah, blah. But the shtick is you give superheroes Lovecraftian explanations and you put Lovecraftian monsters into a superhero world, specifically the superhero world of the Golden Age, which is its own kind of superhero world, and mush them up. And then obviously Dwayne McDuffie, God rest his soul, um, peace be upon him, uh, crossed them over in um, uh, uh, an episode of the Justice League Unlimited where they, uh, 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 Hawk, uh, it was uh, Hawk Girl and... Um, Dr. Fate and Aquaman and um, uh, uh, Solomon Grundy battled uh, Ichthulu um, in uh, exciting cartoon format. Um, I think Superman may have battled Cthulhu in something. I know he battles Cthulhu in Matt Rossi's novel Nameless, which I think is great fun and everyone should read. Um, so the question that I asked in Adventures in the Darkness is, what story are you telling? Are you telling a superheroic story in which the whole point is that man can overcome? Or are you telling a horror story in which the whole point is that man cannot overcome? And you can have superheroes in a horror story and you can have horror in a superhero story, but one of them is going to be the controlling. And as long as you know which one you're going for, you will avoid assumption clash and you can enjoy all the fun of both of those things. Um, uh, there's also, of course, uh, once you get down to the less Superman supers, uh, the doom that came to Gotham, which is Batman versus Deep Ones, is awesome because if there's anyone who can fight Deep Ones, it's Batman. That's kind of fair. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of um, really rich material to mine when you look at the fact that superheroes are local exceptions to reality, when you look at the fact that uh, the notion of being fully human, a la Batman or some of the others, Captain America, if part of that is also full understanding of the universe, right? You, you, you know, Dr. Manhattan and Watchmen's like the good answer. <laughs> so I think that, you know, there's a lot of really interesting fun space to play in. And if all you want to do is, you know, can Dr. Fate beat up near Lothotep? Well, you know, it's your game, man. I think it's a waste of both Dr. Fate and near Lothotep, but I'm not you. Uh, I think that uh, part of the fun of blending those two genres is to sort of drill down and look at what's actually driving them both and see what happens when you do run archetypal heroism into archetypal anti-heroism. Um, in, not in the sense of an anti-hero, but anti the concept of heroism. So I, I think it's, um, uh, it, it's a great space to, 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 to think about and a super great space to play in, assuming everyone has the same buy-in. If, if half the table is, here, is rooting for hero and half the uh, tables rooting for horror, you're going to have a really dysfunctional table. And you might not even know why, because everyone was like, oh, I'm really excited to see what happens when Green Lantern goes up against um, uh, uh, Asathoth. Um, but, you know, half the table thinks they know how it's going to come out, and they're both wrong. <laughs> so, anyway. Yeah. Okay, why do you think um, Cthulhu specifically has all the Lovecraft creatures and icons why that specifically became like the fall mask on the logo for the whole Lovecraft 
I think uh, there's uh, you can have a sort of historical answer to that, and because and the answer is because August Derleth named it the Cthulhu Mythos, and August Derleth was the guy in charge of publishing it for 25, 30 years. That's why. Um, you can sort of say that's cheating. Why would August Derleth pick Cthulhu? And the answer is August Derleth tried to pick Haster, and Clark Ashton Smith said, well, Lovecraft always called it the Og-Sothoth cycle. Why don't you call it that? And then in a fit of pique, he went and called it Cthulhu Mythos because he didn't like being... Um, uh, well, actually, by Clark Ashton Smith. Although, who wouldn't want to be well actually by Clark Ashton Smith, I ask you. But I think, fundamentally, it's because Cthulhu's the only one of them with his name in a major title. There's a, set, there's a, fr- a story fragment called As a Thought. There's a short story, which is terrific, but it's not enough to, to, to lead the whole universe on called Nirlathotep. But those are the only ones in names of things. Call of Cthulhu has the name of the, of the, of the demon prince, god, mage, priest, monster, in the title, and it's all about him. Uh, it's his origin story and his future. It's his gospel, right? It's his anti-gospel. So uh, you have that going, and also it's a really good story. It is one of the you know four or five greatest stories Lovecraft ever wrote, which means it's one of the ten or twenty greatest stories in horror that anyone ever wrote. So uh, I think that's why I think it's you know it got attached to that really core story really core early and there's no other plausible claimant uh, again like I say Lovecraft called it the Oxothoth mythos but that's because Lovecraft was in Lovecraft's head uh, uh, we weren't out there um, so I would I would say that that's why it, you know if you look and you say well what plausible competitor would there be there isn't one um, I think uh, also it's fun to say <laughs> so there's that. Yeah. What do you think, productively speaking, about the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game? I think it's magnificent. I think it's the greatest role-playing game ever done. The greatest role, the greatest role-playing there ever can be. I covered that before you guys got in here. Um, it's the king layer of role-playing. Um, if you you know if you want if you are a role-playing game designer like I am, suck it up. The best game you ever make is going to be the second best role-playing game ever made. And the odds are against that too, but you know, it's. It, I think it's. I don't say impossible because given a, a billion years, someone's going to write a better play than King Lear, maybe. But given a billion years, no one's going to bother writing a better role-playing game than Call of Cthulhu because anyone who could do it is going to be in a different art field. Would you say there's a better version of the Call of Cthulhu, the Chaosium version? I know they're on. <coughs> well, they they currently have the seventh edition out, which is actually the biggest change to Sandy's original rule set that there ever has been. Uh, the second edition had a couple of tweaks, that many of which they undid in the third edition, um, uh, swapping out appearance for charisma and that kind of thing. And then they, uh, they wound up staying really stable from third to sixth. My favorite edition, in the sense of the one that if I were running Call of Cthulhu tomorrow, I would pull off the shelf and run out of his fifth, but that's because I think that that book is super well organized and super compact and is actually attractive to hold and look at. Um, but it, it, my first edition is in literally fragments. I, I, I have it in a three-ring binder because it came apart while I ran the hell out of it in uh, high school and college. So um, I do not... I am a hardcore Sandy Peterson purist and Puritan and scold and terrible person. <laughs> so I believe that many of the mechanical innovations in 7th edition are contrary to that 
harsh, cold, unforgiving, hateful spirit that I embody. Um, the P- I know the guys who did it, and they're lovely people and good game designers, but I think that the, and Lovecraft would agree, if you let humans touch things enough, they'll fuck it up. And um, uh, I'm not going to say 7th edition is fucked up, but I will say that none of the changes that they made are changes that I would make to a core system. There are some changes that they made that I would say, that's a really interesting thing to do in one campaign frame, to give you a flavor of that. Uh, I, would nev- I wouldn't put luck points or fate points into it in any form whatsoever, but some of the other changes that they made are like, nah, that's very interesting. Um, but by and large, why, why, you know, why mess with success? You know, you have you have a, a Shelby Cobra. You're like, I think it would look better with you know a spoiler. No, it would not. <laughs> Mr. Shelby designed it that way. Stop touching. <laughs> yeah. Um, this ties to both Lovecraft's writing and uh, the RPG. How do you view the Dreamlands as a rather uh, different sort of? Um, the, the dreamlands are weird and they were weird when Lovecraft was writing them they are weird when people are studying Lovecraft they are weird when they're in the call of Cthulhu they are weird in trail of Cthulhu they're just always weird which I guess is good that's the point the Dreamlands shouldn't feel like the real world. It shouldn't feel like, oh, we're just playing Call of Cthulhu, but we're in um, uh, we're in Serenaria or we're in um, uh, Celephaeus. It should you should be going. What you can do? Why can I do that? That makes no sense because that's the lived experience of uh, of, of reading the Dream Quest certainly, and of being dreaming as opposed to being in a, a nightmare. That said, I don't know that anyone has done it successfully including Lovecraft, uh, with the exception of a couple of stories. Uh, and you can, I would argue that the two really successful Dreamland stories, uh, Doom that came to Sarnath and Cats of Ulthar, neither of them have to be in the Dreamlands, that both of those places are retconned into the Dreamlands when Lovecraft writes Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath and cherry picks his whole previous corpus and just jams stuff in, in a giant game of reference poker. Uh, Dream Quest... I think when you read Dream Quest, there are two kinds of people. The people who love it to death and can't get enough Dream Quest, and the people who uh, feel like they just ate a whole bag of Halloween candy. Um, it, I, you, know, you enjoyed every bite, but at the end you're like, Dad, I'm not doing that again. Uh, <laughs> and I am more in Camp 2 than I am in Camp 1. I mean, parts of Dream Quest are just magical and beautiful, but it is a 38,000... Uh, uh, it is a... No, not 38,000. It is a... 70,000 word, well, maybe it, somewhere, but it's, let's, you know, split the difference. It's a 50,000 word uh, novella with no chapter breaks. And that's, that's a hard road to hoe. I, and it's super picaresque. You know, Carter is just doing this and he's, and there's a through line of sorts, but oh my God, uh, it's all over the map. Um, and the, the dreamlands are like that. So I would say, you know, the, the, the first really great Dreamlands thing uh, will be the first really great Dreamlands thing. Sandy Peterson's Dreamlands, the book, um, or the, 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 the Dreamlands book that they did for Call of Cthulhu was a really great gazetteer in a fantasy world that used Call of Cthulhu rules and could interpenetrate the real world if you wanted it to. Dennis Detwiller does great, great nightmare versions of the Dreamlands in Delta Green. 
uh, because Dennis, I think, is trying to crack that nut and is really obsessed with that sort of aspect of the difference between waking and asleep and not knowing which you are at any given moment. Um, and he does really good Dreamlands work, but I don't think that it... I think it's Dennis Lands, not Dreamlands, that he's really exploring. Um, uh, so, I mean, maybe... Uh, I think they're doing an animated cartoon of the Dreamlands. I thought I read that some German pr producers were doing that. Maybe that's the way to do it. Jason Thompson did a great comic book of it, which is uh, super good, uh, uh, from Mockman Press. Um, and, and that may be the closest to what the Dreamlands ought to be, is his crazy-ass comic book. Um, but... I've never successfully integrated them in play. Robin Laws, of course, uh, simply used them as the sounding board for playing surrealists, which is what he wanted to do anyway. Um, and uh, the, the notion that surrealism alters the dreamlands instead of altering uh, the human psyche is uh, typical Lawsian humor. And Dream, Dreamhounds of Paris is a terrific book, but again, uh, you could be certainly forgiven for saying you're cheating. You're just playing in a Dali painting, not in the Dreamland. So, uh, yeah, that's my that's my takeaway. Yeah. Uh, so, what's the best way when you're running one of these games for your players to scare the living shit out of them? <laughs> um, scaring the living shit out of players requires one thing absolutely and that is the agreement of everyone involved that you are playing a horror game that your job at the table is to play a horror game not to play a role-playing game not to play a war game not to play any other kind of game but to play a horror game and your decisions at the table should be subordinated to your desire to be scared because you cannot be involuntarily scared by clattering dice and someone saying, and then it was Shubnigarot. Can't be done. Um, when you read a horror story, you're making a contract with yourself that I'm going to be scared by this horror story, assuming the author isn't any good. If you are playing a role-playing game, you're making all manner of contracts to yourself. Nothing is good on TV tonight. I like Chad, and I haven't seen him for a week, and I'd like to come over to his house. Who can say? But if you are not contracting, I am going to play a horror game. I am at least going to try to be scared. I'm going to be open to the possibility no one can scare you. No GM, no matter how many of my books you buy, can do that. Uh, given everyone being willing to be scared, horror becomes the best kind of role-playing there is because you're tapping into a direct vein of emotion. Most of our emotions are either too ugly to want to be tapped into or too personal. Um, you play a role-playing game about love, which can be great. Emily Kerr-Boss does magical role-playing games about love, but... It's not a communal experience, unless you're on E, which I've never tried, but knock yourselves out, kids. Um, but, you know, if, if, I'm think, if I'm truly in love as a character during a role-playing game, I'm, I mean, I'm not even thinking about Emily, who is delightful. I'm thinking about my wife, or possibly my cat. Um, but you can't share that around the table. I'm certainly not thinking about Chad. I mean, I like Chad, but I'm not going to be in love with Chad today or next year. Um, Horror, however, I can be scared with Chad all day. And horror is a super deep well. I mean, it's, it's, it's pre-human. It goes back to the, the old limbic system. So that's why to do it. How to do that is uh, a couple of, there's a structural way, which is the roller coaster. If you've been on a roller coaster, you know how roller coasters work. There's a slow build. There's a minute of dread at the top. Free-falling terror. Brief respite, slow build. 
And that model sounds stupid and mechanical until you realize it works every goddamn time you're on a roller coaster and every time you watch a slasher film. And the slow build can be dumb. It can be oversold. It can be uh, badly scored. Everything can be wrong with it. But if you're there in the chair, alone in the house, movies on, or you're in the theater with a bunch of other people breathing in and out through their mouths, you're going to have that physical reaction to terror. And that physical reaction is created by that series of emotions. Just like, you know, saying eggs and milk and bread and cinnamon will make French toast. It, you do it, there's going to be French toast out the other side. Um, you do those things, there's going to be horror. Now, the trick is to change up the pacing, mess with the content, hit them from a side. Say you're on the Batman roller coaster, they get to the top of the areas, they're on the Joker roller coaster. Holy crap, the unexpected, things like that. All the little pieces that go in. But if you've mastered the roller coaster and everyone's ready to be scared, you'll have no trouble running a horror game. And then the rest of it is really just all in the details. It's What's likely to scare them? What's going to unnerve them? What's something that I think everyone should be scared of? Uh, terrorists or uh, global warming or whatever it happens to be. How do I represent that thematically in the game? I think a vampire is really, really scary because it not only drains your life out of you, it makes you willing to do that. How do I make that scariness, that thing that I think about a vampire, true in the role-playing game? I do it to Chad, or I do it to Chad's character's uh, mom, or I do it to Chad's best friend who is also in the game, Bob, and Bob is a good role-player, and so Bob will give me lots of good responses of sort of heroin-addicted suicide uh, at the hands of this vampire, and Chad will be terrified because Bob is playing terrified really well, and then that will terrify Bob because Bob and Chad are buddies, and you're going to have a great moment because you're going to build that pour organically at the table. But that's your ingredients. I don't know how many eggs. I don't know how much milk. I don't know what kind of bread. I don't even know if you have the real cinnamon or the crappy, cheap cinnamon from the store. I can't make your French toast for you. But you can say, yeah, my eggs are kind of iffy, but this is pure cream, buddy. We're going to have basically bread omelets with cinnamon, and it's going to be boss. <laughs> and, and you're going to make that at your table with your ingredients. And that knowing your players and knowing terror is what's going to let you run that roller coaster super best and it's going to let all of your friends say yeah, James runs a freaking awesome horror game, let's come and be prepared to be scared, let's not get on our phones, let's not be thinking about um, uh, uh, you know, the Orange is the New Black or, or, or Chad's problems with his work or whatever else we might be thinking about let's get in this, in this space and that's going to cause a virtuous cycle of feedback and you're going to find it easier and easier and easier to run it and that's really the trick. I mean, everything that I that I say is at greater length in pretty much any book I write. Um, GURPS Horror 4th Edition is my sort of how to run horror and a bunch of things to run with it or run through it. Um, <coughs> and, you know, what monsters symbolize and how you can use them in games and things like that. So if you're curious, the long version of my answer is GURPS Horror. Um, we just got the 10 minute sign, so we have time for one good question or two mediocre questions. I'll try to give a good one. First, I really want to nominate Second, it feels like the short story or the, the one shot is the great way to move forward because you just embrace it, you can all die, everything goes wrong. How do you do the horror campaign? Uh, the horror campaign's virtues are continuity and callback. Uh, you're right, short stories are great because. Um, uh, Everyone can die at the end. 
one shots are great because everyone can die at the end. That means no one's scared of dying at the end, potentially. They may agree to be scared. They're going to have a great time. But they're like, I didn't really have anything invested in that character because I knew I was only going to play him for one shot. In a campaign, you, you got investment. You care about the character more. You rolled him up, maybe. It wasn't a pre-gen that got handed to you at the table. Um, you didn't just roll him up. You rolled him up with your good buddy Chad, and Chad helped you you know, fix that problem with the combat mechanics or whatever it was. You've got skin in the game. And then if he's gone through an adventure, now he's got a history. And he's gone through two adventures. He's got more history. It's not even about he leveled up. He got an extra plus two. It's just he's got a lived experience. You know more and more and more about this character. A GM can come back and take a thing out of that character's past and bring it up and make it terrifying in a way that no one-shot GM can say, if you remember your character four years ago met an aged uh, a necromancer and barely escaped with his life. But if you met an aged necromancer four sessions ago or four years ago and your character barely escaped with his life, you remember that, right? You have that going on. Much less, oh, your uncle dies and leaves you a haunted house. That's bad enough when you do it in a, in a one-shot. Doing it in a campaign is, is god-awful. But if they've cleverly put your uncle into the game a couple of times, now you have an uncle. And now he's died. That's terrible. But he left me a house. But I'll bet it's haunted. Because that's the kind of guy my uncle is, and it's a horror game. But that, that, that stupid hook is less stupid if you've had time to set it. And time is the essential ingredient. So that's uh, why to run a horror campaign and a good piece, I think, of how. Yeah. Do you ever see my action role play going or being assisted by um, computer or and or like um, a new system? Um, I'm sure that it, I'm sure it's happening now. I mean, I'm I, I'm not a big LARPer, uh, but I know a bunch of really cutting edge LARP people, and I am morally certain that right now there are LARPs that require you to have brought your iPhone in and use them to mediate the mechanics or mediate the experience that maybe at some point they, they send a, a ringtone to everybody's phone and it plays a spooky song or something. Um, and I'm absolutely certain that's happening. I just have no idea who's doing it. Um, and I think as our technology gets more omnipresent and less obtrusive, it's going to happen more and more and more and more. So right now, if you can imagine, I'm sure that there is a way to make your Apple Watch do weird shit. If everyone's wearing an Apple Watch, then you have maximum do shittable without anyone having to look at a lighted screen. So, yeah, I think it's inevitable. Um, I don't know that it is better or worse than doing it the old-fashioned way with uh, dressing up in a bathrobe and pretending to be a vampire, but I was never that understanding of why that worked either. So, I mean, I get it theoretically. It just, I was always like, this is a hotel function room. I don't think this is a starship at all. Which is weird, because I, I can do that at the table. Something about standing up. It's like, my critical faculties are now engaged. <laughs> um, anybody have, a, like, a, a, a tag for us? We've still got a little time. Yes. Thank you. Right. And so I think that ideally, if, if you are 
playing a character that you know, is losing their sanity in the game mechanics that, I don't know, hopefully would give you some empathy for, you know, what that might be like in real life, even though it's not exactly the same that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. It's not actually mimicking real life. But your character, if you're, you're invested in your character, the things that they are doing make sense to them mm -hmm. because they have, you know, they have, have witnessed this horror mm -hmm. and everything and they're dealing with it as best as they can. So I think ideally, right, you'd be able to translate some of the empathy that you have for your character in the game to the real world sort of situation. Yeah, I think certainly ideally you should be translating the empathy you feel of any role-playing game, madness or not, into real-world empathy for other people who have other problems that are on their own quests. Um, and certainly any game in which you're playing someone who is handicapped or weakened in any way should let you have empathy for uh, people who are suffering. Um, you know, I, oh, I lost five hit. But imagine going up to a guy who lost his arm in a war zone and saying, "Well, I lost seventeen hit points at the table once. I know how I know how you feel. You'd, you'd, you'd feel like an idiot because guess what? You'd be an idiot." <laughs> and I think that the sort of um, uh, what do I want to say? Uh, the extreme abstraction of mental illness in role playing can lead you down that same primrose path of maybe not actually having empathy, but of being sort of uh, 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 maybe self-deluding about the degree of actual empathy that you have. And I think that if you're interested in mental illness and playing a Cthulhu game has made you interested, how does the mind work? How does it process stuff? Then that can certainly lead you into maybe understanding what's going on. And certainly if you're doing any kind of research as a GM, because you're setting the game in an asylum or you want to have a, 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 a an actual paranoid schizophrenic have seen something and want to know how that affect will play out at the table, one hopes that that research has not made you callous and awful, that you have, you know, learned to think, oh, my God, that that's a person. And even if it's not, even if the old Freudian notion of your mom saw something or you saw something as an infant that has scarred you for life is is actually, you know, bogus, that it's a matter of just, you know, the level of the of the of the fillings that they topped you up with, um, you should still present it in a in a uh, in a human fashion as opposed to an abstract game piece type fashion, and one would hope you learn that. But again, I think that that's true of most things. Um, but yeah, it's a good thing to keep in mind. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that was you know we're we're ending on a on a sort of note of humanity and understanding, which kind of violates the whole principle in a way. <laughs> But um, that is what happens every now and again. Um, yeah, I, we're, we're, the guy still hasn't come back in, so if someone thinks they have a fast one, James? What's your favorite Lovecraftian monster to run? The Shoggoth. The, sh the Shoggoth can literally do anything except survive being frozen. I mean, he can survive being frozen, it just can't do anything when it's being frozen. But short of being disintegrated in an atomic furnace, where it literally is torn apart, not molecule by molecule, because the molecules are individually sentient, but atom by atom. Nothing stops a Shoggoth. It's, you know, and it can grow anything you want to have. So, you know, that that player really has a creep out with uh, butterflies. That Shoggoth's got great, big, lambent, gauzy wings 
like, oh, I don't want that. The shaga can float. It can cling to the ceiling like a goo. It can, I mean, it's, it's the everywhere you want to be all purpose going to kill you. Um, and it's got, it, it's bulletproof and it's got way more hit points and it's just massively cool. The trouble is it's going to wipe out a party. <laughs> so you have to always present it with a, Yes, but, or an escape clause, or a, if you think real fast, you can't kill it, but you can seal it away. But that makes you more creative as a GM, right? If you're thinking, well, it's a 10 by 10 room, let's put three deep ones in it, that'll be a fight. <laughs> it's true, that will be a fight, and it'll be great fun, but you won't have put any thought into it. But if you're like, it's a 10 by 10 room, let's put a shoggoth in it, you're like, oh, fuck, that's going to be a short game. <laughs> and now you have to really think about it and say, I've got to work out a... And, while you're thinking about it, you're getting creative, and you're thinking more about the built environment. You're thinking about the other things that are going on and things you might leave around. And pretty sure, pretty soon, that ten by ten room turned into a whole adventure. It turned into a whole storyline, and maybe you've got tags. It's like, well, who built this facility and put a shagath in it? That seems careless. <laughs> and now you have a sequel. <laughs> you know, it's like you know, it's a Dharma initiative on the top. And you're like, well, I'm going to go find out who those jackasses are. We ready? Okay. All right. Uh, the good man has come. If you have not given him your tickets, please give him your tickets so that we can prove that Cthulhu is genuinely popular and it's not that you came merely to see me, which seems unlikely on the face of it. Uh, thank you all very much for uh, showing up, for participating, for asking questions, for pushing back and giving opinions and everything else. Uh, so thanks very much, guys, and go enjoy Gen Con. Thanks a lot, man.